Hey, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half, Walk Double podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in beautiful Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you've listened to the show before, well, welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Jeff Hickson is my guest this week. He and I are the co-race directors for the Waterville Valley Mountain Race presented by Socrates. As a course designer, he has developed a reputation for creating challenging but fair mountain race courses, including the one used at the 2019 U.S. Mountain Running Championship. And perhaps that reputation comes as no surprise when you learn that professionally, he's a biochemist working to help develop medicines to treat cancer, and athletically, he's participated in mountain races all over the world, including the legendary Sierras and all, twice. Not to mention, he and his wife adopted not one, but two rescue dogs during the pandemic to bring their pack total to three, all the while raising three kids. So yeah, Jeff likes challenges. Our chat covers his introduction to acidotic racing, the brief but eventful history of the Bretton Woods Fell race, and the latest update on the course changes at this weekend's Waterville Valley Mountain Race. Well, here he is, Jeff Hickson. Jeff, welcome to the show. Super excited to be on. Thanks for having me. How you doing, buddy? It's been been a little while since you and I had a chance to uh, see each other and, and chat. How's your summer been going? It's been going great. A lot of outdoor adventures, so can't ask for more than that. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, I, I, I suspect that you are um, not only busy with your own activities, but probably busy with family as well, too. Uh, I, I know you've got a uh, you've got a, an, an active family. Um in fact, if, if you're willing to uh, uh, to share a little bit about that, uh, tell the listener about 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 your family. Sure, and and have a, a bit of a story around that too, because as you said, I've gotten roped into a number of activities. Um, but yeah, I live in uh, Boxford, Mass, a northern Mass along the coast, um, with my wife Erica. We have three children: um, daughter Maya, who's 21 and is a senior at University of New England in OT. So good for us aging athletes, <laughs> uh, potentially. Um, we have twins who are 13, uh, Devlin and Calliope, and they're both, um, so they're in eighth grade, actively involved in a lot of sports. Our daughter Calliope is a national competitive cheerleader. Um, so in fact, travels uh, all over the country pursuing her sport at a, a very high level. And, and my wife is very involved in that. My son Devlin is involved in soccer for now many years, and so the story that goes along with that is as a uh, individual endurance athlete, just got roped into my first year of soccer coaching, which is a completely <laughs> different thing. I uh, think I think that's a I think that's a total rite of passage. Well, may, maybe coaching soccer is new for you, but coaching is not yeah, new yeah. for you, nope, right? Nope, for sure. Um, but yeah, so our first game was last Saturday, and and not only did I coached my first soccer game, but I was also tasked with refing the game and for eighth graders. That was uh, interesting. Now you didn't, you, 
as I recall, uh, you did not play team sports uh, as a youth. You were very much involved in individual sports. So you never you never played soccer as a kid. I did not. Yeah, I played uh, I played like all of the individual sports that I could in middle school and high school from cross country skiing to cross country running, tennis, golf. Um, yeah, <laughs> so never played uh, never played the team sports. So that was mm. an interesting transition. But again, you 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 have a background in coaching youth sports, right? You've I mean, you, have, you maybe you haven't coached. Obviously, you haven't, you haven't coached youth soccer before, but you have coached uh, youth sports before. Tell uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so have a a, um, a long background in skiing. So grew up in uh, northern New Hampshire. Um, so of course, um, with the long uh, snowy winters up there, did got involved with cross country skiing at a very early age. My parents um, weren't weren't so outdoorsy, weren't so sport inclined. But um, one thing that we did do a lot as a family when I was growing up was cross country ski. Um, so really enjoyed that. Uh, when I got to middle school, high school, there was a cross country ski team, so joined that and um, had a great time with that. And that led to all the other individual sports and eventually skied um, when I went to University of New Hampshire as well, um, competitively in, in their program. And after I, I finished school there, um, started coaching um, cross-country skiing. Um, so coached at a, a pretty high level outside of, um, outside of after I finished uh, my training there. Um, in the club area and then up through the junior national team and even on the development team for the U.S. ski team for a little while. Um, so it was a, a great experience. I really liked it. Um, continued that until I started having children and then <laughs> things got busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and that's sort of a common refrain, right, from most yep. of us um, that, um, you know, discretionary time mm -hmm. um, ends up uh, rightly and appropriately being being dedicated to raising kids, right? Particularly uh, active kids, uh, kids that are involved in, in in lots of outside extracurricular activities. Um, uh, well, uh, so uh, uh, you know, in, in addition to this 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 family component of yours and in in your involvement uh, with your kids, um, you also have a I, I think you also have a pretty interesting career as well and 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 profession and and uh you know it's funny when i when you first told me what you did um i i mean i was i was immediately impressed because it, you don't it's not every day you get a chance to meet someone who is sort of involved in the in the front line of 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 you know cancer research um and and other and other other sort of chronic illness uh uh research to, so Tell us a little bit about what you do professionally. Yeah, so I did my training, as I said, at the University of New Hampshire in um, medical microbiology, biochemistry, um, molecular biology, and so of course moved to the Boston area um, when I when I finished my training there, and have since worked in the pharmaceutical industry. So mainly at small biotech companies that are just starting up that have you know some new idea on how to treat some disease. Um, and so I've worked a lot of my career on um, ways to treat cancer with, um, with you know, pharmaceutical agents. So as a biochemist now, um, do all of the kind of the small molecule drug screening. So the initial screening to identify those compounds that would then, you know, through further development, become a drug that is then commercially sold and used to treat patients. And 
Um, it's been a, a really incredible ride uh, through a, a number of companies, um, mostly small companies, but have um, seven compounds that I've, I've worked on that have made it into human trials in the clinic and three that are, are now FDA approved and um, are being used to treat patients, two of them in cancer, as you mentioned, and one of them in a, a rare genetic disease called pyruvate kinase deficiency, which is a, a rare genetic anemia. Um, and so currently at, at another company where we're working on um, oncology again, as well as um, neurodegenerative diseases, so ALS and, and some of these other really debilitating diseases that don't have a lot of treatment options. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly enough, um, I mean, cancer gets a tremendous amount of, 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 of attention and, 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 and rightly so. Um, but it also, it also gets the, the, the majority of the research dollars, right. In terms of, in terms of, uh, uh, charitable contributions, you, you mentioned, you mentioned ALS, uh, Alzheimer's disease, another, another good example too, um, that, that there, you know, there are, there are many chronic illnesses out there, um, that, um, you know the 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 fundraising dollars just sort of are are minuscule in comparison to the amount of money raised uh, for cancer research. So along that line, uh, I mean you you've been involved in the front line, right, of, of helping to develop some of these some of these cancer drugs, um, and perhaps it's a it's a it's a um, uh, it's an impossible question to answer. But how close do you feel like we are to coming up with a with a cure uh, for cancer? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is an interesting, it is a tough question, I think, because a lot of the the research lately has been really involved in in targeted targeted therapy. So really looking at specific areas of cancer that are, you know, unique to a specific type of tumor and really targeting something that is very specific there. So, and that's been really successful in a number of, of fronts in areas that we've not been able to treat before. Now are, are, we're seeing some treatment. But I think when you talk about a universal cure, that's a really difficult challenge, right? Because then, you know, you're talking about something that has to be, you know, ubiquitous to all different types of cancer. And, and that's a, a tough ask, really. But I think, I think we are making great progress in these targeted cancers and, you know, making a, a really, really good stride to treat all of the different types of cancers. There's still a few that are really a tough, tough nut to crack, but I feel like with the targeted cancer and with the new understanding, we are making great st strides in being able to at least treat all types of cancer, not cure yet. I think that's going to be a, a bigger challenge. Yeah. Well, I also think you make a good point in that um, in, in terms of cancer, um, uh, uh, the, the lethality of, of cancer is not unit board, right? There are, there are obviously some, some cancers that are, that survival rates are much higher. Um, when, when you think of those, uh, cancers that, um, are, are those sort of tough nuts to crack as you, as you describe, in other words, those, those types of cancers that don't necessarily respond well to, to current treatments and tend to have the highest mortality rates, um, just off the top of your head. And I, I didn't ask you to do any of this, in, any of this, uh, prep in advance of the show, but, um, can you, can you, can you think of a couple of types of, 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 uh, you know, organ specific cancers or, or specific types of cancers that tend to be the most lethal and the most difficult to treat? 
Yeah, I mean, if you think of like pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, those are some that really don't have a lot of treatment options. And, you know, they've been worked on a decent amount. And, and you know, it's just, there's, there's been, you know, really tough going and in, in making progression to get to those treatments. And, and I think, you know, one thing that we're really seeing now are these cancer dependencies. So if you can find a type of cancer that has a specific mutation, like, you know, you often hear about breast cancer with like HER2 negative or, or different mutations that, that occur in, in different types of cancers. So if we can identify, you know, things like that, so different subsets of cancer in colorectal and pancreatic that would then have a, what we call a synthetic lethality. So you have a gene that's knocked out by some deletion which then allows a vulnerability in another gene. And then that can become our drug target where that gene itself is not, that protein or gene is not necessarily lethal on its own, but when you have some other dependency that is, is mutated in that type of cancer, then that becomes a really attractive drug target. And that's where a lot of progress is being made right now um, to try to, to combine these synthetic lethalities that really don't target any of the the normal human cells, but really go after and target specifically a cancer cell. And so I'm hoping that we're going to be able to find something like that and, and be able to, you know, I think there are some now identified and some people are working on, you know, especially pancreatic and colorectal. I think those two are really, really some of the bad ones. So you mentioned that um, out of uh, out of school, you moved to the Boston area to sort of begin your professional journey. Um, as you think about it, um, uh, it is is the Boston area um, uh, sort of a a hub or one of the hubs uh, in the United States in terms of cancer research. And if and if it's one of many, um, where 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 else would where else where else do folks like you tend to go to, to work on these types of things? Is it, uh, I mean, is it Silicon Valley uh, or is it the Midwest where, I mean, where, where is the majority of this research being done? No, it's, it's almost exclusively being done in, in Cambridge, Boston area, right? So that is where the vast majority of, of the biotechs are, the, the, the cancer research, the hospitals that are at the leading edge of research as well are, are really within the Cambridge, Boston area. I mean, there is a kind of a small hub in um, Southern California, San Diego area, um, where there's a, a number of biotechs as well, a number of pharmaceutical companies there. Um, and then outside of that, it's really, you know, there used to be kind of the, the research triangle in North Carolina, but that there's still some there, but that's not as attractive anymore. Um, I think like the New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, there were a number of pharmaceutical companies in, in that area that have since left and, and most of them have come to Cambridge or, or moved elsewhere. So it really is Boston, Cambridge, that is the hub of, of, um, of research and cancer and, and also the, the leading hospitals that are, are doing cancer research and treatment as well. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's an interesting symmetry as well. I was going to I was going to yeah. ask you about that, too. Right. So not only is the Boston area sort of the, um, you know, the, the hub uh, for for the research side of things. It's also where people come from all over the United States to, to receive the best cancer treatment in, in, in the United States and, and, and some would argue in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, we're. I feel like we're pretty fortunate to to live in the in the in the sort of greater New England area that we are actually we are actually so close um, to uh, right to um, you know to kind of the brain behind uh, this stuff. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, well, I, I appreciate you you sharing a little bit about about your family and and what you do. I think I think that's an important context uh, as we as we lead into our discussion about the uh, the Waterville Valley Mountain Race. The last but not least, also the doggos. We can't forget those. Oh, geez, you know three what? dogs, right? Well, I well I I guess I sort of was relying on you to include them as part of the family, Jeff. Right. I, you know, uh, I mean, I I may, know. maybe I just asked about kids, but actually, when I four-legged <laughs> three kids are, are part of the equation uh-huh. too please yes yeah. please so please talk like, about your like you have a, a full pack here even <laughs> more so we have uh jake who's our our older guy he's uh four so we got him pre-pandemic um as a, a, a small pup he's a rescue so he's a black lab german shepherd um was a little bit crazy when we got him. Like, needed a lot of exercise, so good, but uh, also a little bit crazy. So then, uh, as the pandemic hit and we're all at home, um, and his craziness was was everywhere, we decided maybe maybe good, maybe bad, but decided he needed a companion to help calm him down. So we got uh, Connie, who is um, a border collie and German. Uh, uh, Australian Shepherd mix, so smaller dog, but and and it worked. So Jake and and Connie got along really well, calmed Jake down, and and uh, they are are great together. And then um, maybe going a little too far, we decided another pandemic puppy was going to be a good idea. So we got Zoe, who is um, two. Connie's three. Zoe's two. Um, Zoe is uh, Mountain Cur and Black Lab, which I think is also code for some pit bull, maybe. <laughs> All right. So she is she is our youngest, but is seventy five pounds, so um, is quite large. And and um, of course, with Connie and Jake is is super sweet. You know, I mean, uh, Tucker and and Boone know Jake. He gets along with everybody, every every dog. I run with him all the time off leash, and he is completely great. The other two, being pandemic puppies, are not so acclimated to other dogs and other people, so <laughs> a little bit of a challenge. Um, so, yeah. yeah, well, uh, <laughs> funny story about you and I and Jake and Tucker, my three-year-old, <clears throat> my three-year-old lab. Um, I don't know. Was was it two years ago now? Maybe it was. It's it's not more than. It can't be more than two years ago now. Uh, we raced the. Um, uh, <laughs> we did the we did the cane across. Why is the? Um, um, it was the Dixon's Revenge. Thank right? you. Why? Yes, that was last sorry. year. Last yeah, sorry, Tom, sorry, Tom Hooper for forgetting <laughs> the name of the six hundred three event. Dixon's Revenge. That was last year or the year before? No, it was last year. Last, oh, last uh, year. It was early last year, so April last year. So okay. Year and a half well, I, yeah, time flies for me. Okay. Yeah. So this was this was before we had Boone, before we added we added Boone, and it was uh, Tucker and I, and 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 so um, thanks to you, you had uh, you had uh, loaned me uh, a cane across setup that you had you had used for Sully, your, mm-hmm. yeah, your, your rescued dog, um, who had, who had passed away, um, right. just, just prior to that, just right. Prior to yeah, you getting, prior to, yep. yeah, prior to you getting, getting, getting Jake. And I met Sully a number of times when we would get together to do some course recon, um, uh, up, up, up in, uh, up in, in the Northern part of the state. Uh, Sully was a great dog. 
but you had a cane across setup that when I was sort of asking about it, you, you lent me your cane across setup, the harness. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, uh, I ended up buying a, a, a waist, uh, belt and a bungee leash to go with that harness. Uh, anyway, Tucker and I started doing some, some, some cane across running. He, you know, he, like Jake, he runs exclusively off leash, but we, you know, we're always in places where there aren't a lot of people or traffic. And so it's safe for him to run off, off leash and Tucker's all lab. So he's all love. He loves everybody and everything he meets. Anyhow, uh, uh, you and I and our dogs decide we're going to do Dixon's Revenge, the cane across race. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So, uh, so it, it's Tucker's first cane across race. Not the first time we've run together. And, and, but it's, you know, it, we'd really only been on, on cane across setup a handful of times prior to, prior to the event. Uh, and too, Dixon, as I recall. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and Dixon's Revenge, as you, as you correctly pointed out, sort of is springtime and uh, it's a trail race. And, um, so the expectation is there's going to be some wet, muddy spots, but having not done it before, I didn't really have any, any idea what that was going to look like. So we, so the race starts and you and Jake and Tucker and I just, we start, we start taking off and we're doing great. Now we're not, we're not, you know, we're not in the front front. We're toward the front. We're not leading the race. I don't know. Right? There was some guy showed up, man, he must've been laying down sub six minute miles for mm -hmm. that first section of like, you know, uh, gravel two track. Yeah. I, and he must've had a greyhound or something. Cause he was just gone. Right. I mean, we, mm -hmm. I felt like the four of us, you and I and Jake and Tucker, we were running pretty hard and that guy was still running away from us. Nevertheless, uh, everything was going really well. Maybe, maybe Jake had a couple of quick side excursions, right. Temporarily. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, you'd get him kind of back on task and you'd catch back up and you and I were running together. It was, it was great. It was a heck of a lot of fun until we got into that section where there it was, it was super muddy <laughs> and wet. Yes. Right? It was like swamped out. It was two track, but it was like swamped out two track, uh -huh. yeah. right? Where like you had to tiptoe on the side to get around these massive puddles in which you had really no idea where they ankle deep, where they waist deep. It was impossible to tell. And I wasn't going to risk just bombing through. I mean, you know, you, you, you and I have been, we've been trail running long enough, at least for me now, I don't bomb through uh, mud puddles anymore. Not like I used to. Anyhow, we get to that wet muddy section and wouldn't, you know, Tucker being all lab, we get to the first muddy puddle uh, and he goes right in and he lays down. Yeah. They and both he, just jump right in. I think. Yeah. He just yeah. jumps in and he literally lays down. Now he's like, he's like an anchor. Like I can't, I cannot pull him out because he has no concept that we're racing. Right. He just, as far as he's concerned, we're out for a run. And what he does when he finds a puddle is he stops and he lays down in it. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, like six or seven people run by us, six or seven people and dogs run by us because, you know, Tucker has no, has no earthly idea that we are actually in a competition. It was hilarious. Um, that section, geez, that section must've been three quarters of a mile long or something. It was a long section for us yep. because every puddle he had to run through. <laughs> And he had to, and he, yep. and he had to lay down in, I can't remember. Jake, Jake didn't, Jake did, did not do that. Did he? He jumped in, but I coaxed him out really quick. And then I think we, we skirted around the rest of them. Okay. But I remember Tucker coming in just completely mud covered wet. <laughs> It was, it was it was a fun time. <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, I, and just, just quick postscript to that. Um, 
Of course, cane across races have become more popular here. Uh, well, just generally in the United States, but even here, even here in New England, uh, more and more are popping up. Uh, have Have you done one since then? With I Jay? haven't done one since then. I did a lot before that with Sully, our, our previous right. dog, up at um, Pineland Farms. Remember, That's they right. used to have one every year, so I did right. a number of them up there with him, which is why I had all those setups. But that was my first one with Jake. And I haven't done one since, so <laughs> maybe that uh, says something about that experience. But it was yeah. fun, but it was uh, it was a little crazy. <laughs> That's those, a good point. The muddy, the big muddy puddles. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, fun, fun race. Uh, well done, well done race. And and the fact that we haven't been back is uh, has nothing to do with with the event, nope. more to do with just the other things that um, that we've had we've had going on. Well. Um, of course, you know, you having twins, um, my wife, Karen and I have twins, uh, dog owners, uh, <laughs> trail mountain runners, you, you and I, we, we, we definitely have a lot in common for sure. And that's probably why, uh, why you and I get along so well together and, and why we work so well together. Um, I, the, the, of course you're, you're, not only are you a, an acidotic racing uh, race director, you and I work collaboratively on the Waterville Valley Mountain Race, but you're actually also a uh, an acidotic racing team member. In fact, um, w one of the original acidotic racing team members, yeah. um, dating oh back to 2010, 2011 timeframe yeah. is when yeah, yeah, I think was. So. Yeah, it was when you got connected to uh, to acidotic racing. It's, it's sort of an interesting. I always, I always, I always find those the stories of how uh, folks come to uh, get connected to acidotic racing interesting. Uh, tell tell that story. How did you how did you how did you come to be a member of acidotic racing? Yeah, um, yeah. So I was um, had done some road racing back kind of when I first moved to Boston and and got you know, quickly burned out of that, like most people who, are, who eventually gravitate to trail running, right? right. Um, so I'd done some marathons, done some road races, um, was just not excited about, you know, the repetitive use injuries and knees and ankles hurting. So it kind of shifted to, to trail racing, was doing some trail racing a bit around, uh, you know, Massachusetts, New Hampshire area, starting to see acidotic a couple of, of places, but then what really it was really a funny story is a, a friend of mine at work had convinced us to do an obstacle race. So back 2009, 2010 area was when, you know, obstacle racing was becoming a big thing and, and Spartan race was just starting up and, and getting going. And so I did I did an obstacle race with a couple of colleagues at work and and hey, it was kind of fun. And hey, you know, coming from a trail racing background, I did pretty well, right? You know, the you have a little bit of strength that you do, and then then you can really kill the trail racing and and on these obstacle races. So did well. So then, you know, sought out a couple of other local races. Back then there was only like one or two Spartan races around, right? Um, so sought out a couple of local races and went to this this local race. It was called the Hoppin' Mad Mud Run, I believe, in Amesbury, Mass. And was just hanging out there, enjoying the scene, had a great, great day. And I see this like crazy crew again there, this acidotic racing crew. And there must have been eight or ten of you guys. And, um, you know, like just seeing you guys have such a good time at the race supporting each other supporting the other racers and i was like you know that's that's the kind of thing i want to be involved in and like like we had already talked about i've been involved in you know coaching and and you know different groups of of running but 
when I saw Acidotic there and, and had seen you guys at, at various races, um, decided to, I think I, I maybe approached you even, Chris, or I, I talked to one of the, I can't remember who it was, one of the other guys, and they directed me to you. And I think you and I connected there and then exchanged some emails after that. Uh, and then then quickly quickly joined Acidotic. And I think my first official race as a member was shortly after that was the Exeter Trail Race. Actually. Yeah, that would have, right, that probably, <laughs> that would have been in June, right? Because the Hop yes. and Mud Run uh was in was in may that year well it just i mean it's interesting how these things come to be right because um obstacle course racing was not on my radar prior to may of 2010 but i i happened to i happened to 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 get a a, a mass email or or an email forwarded to me i can't exactly remember how i came to to hear about this hop and mad mun run and at that time um you know, acidotic racing 2010. So we, we'd been around for, um, we, we, we'd been around as an organized team for three or four, four or five years at that point. But our, 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 our membership was growing. We had, you know, we had a number, uh, we had, we had a, a pretty sizable number of folks that were, that were racing for us at that time. And, um, so, uh, when I heard about the race and then I heard that there was a, you know, there, there was a team, competition to it right mm -hmm. you could do it as a solo but you could do it as a team four person uh male four person female or co-ed uh for us it was it was a it was just it was a great opportunity to to you know to to put some teams together some acidotic racing teams together and go and uh and support this event and and try out something something new so um you're right i mean i know for sure we had two uh two teams of four one all male team and one co-ed team we might have had a handful of other solo racers uh, there as well. Nevertheless, there were, we we probably were one of the larger represented teams um, in 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 the sport at that time. So myself, uh, Tim Cox, Brent Kazik, and uh, and my my good buddy Dwight Hartman, we raced as a team of four. And then uh, Sarah and Mike Saladay at the time. Sarah was Sarah Silverberg. She wasn't married to Mike at that time, but. Uh, Sarah, Mike, Rye, and one of their friends raced as a, as a co-ed team. Anyhow, it was a, it was a 10 K obstacle course race. But as you remember, the, the initial part of that race was like a two mile road run. Basically right. they had yeah, you yeah. run kind of around the, on the road, like to the back edge of the farm, yeah. so to speak. And then basically once you got to the back edge of the farm, you, you negotiated the obstacle obstacles on the farm until you kind of got to the finish that's that's that that was that was my recollection of it mm -hmm. yep. but it was i i want to say it was a two mile road yeah so um so you know tim uh and brent i mean they're they're you know they're, they're cross country and uh track and field coaches and they're uh they're they're lifelong runners themselves tim happens to be uh an elite uh uh runner uh, so running two miles on the road was going to be a piece of cake for those guys. My buddy Dwight um, uh, actually has a he, he has some pretty pretty impressive uh, adventure racing, uh, obstacle course racing credentials. But Dwight's not a just a pure speed runner. Uh, so so when we took off, and you know, if the whole point of, of us showing up is if we're going to show up, we're going to try to do the, be the best that we can do, even though we've never done this before. Uh, I, I don't know how many of us had actually done obstacle course racing at that point. I don't know that Tim and Brent had Dwight might have, but we, we had certainly never done it as a, as a team. 
well, that first two mile road section tent with Tim and Brent leading us, we were laying down sub six minute miles for that first, that, you know, that first mile. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, Dwight and I were kind of barely hanging on to, to, to Brent and, uh, and Tim, of course, the idea is you gotta, you should kind of need to stick together. Right. Um, well, when we finished that two mile segment, I, I think the split came out to just under 12 minutes for that, for that, that first two mile road section. Right. So yeah. we just, we just obliterated it right now because it was a wave start you didn't really have any idea if you were, if you were first or you were last, right. Cause there's just mm-hmm. people everywhere. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, so you didn't, you weren't, you weren't necessarily racing other teams as much as you were racing the clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so then, you know, series of climbing over barriers and climbing under things and, and negotiating, you know, um, uh, uh, high walls and, and, uh, um, there was a, wasn't there like a, a mesh uh, or there was like a rope ladder, like a, a, a cargo, v, net. Yeah. cargo net, big mm-hmm. V shape rope yep. thing you had to climb over. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, the, there's a photo um, that I had posted on my, I was blogging at that point. So I, uh, mm-hmm. and the reason I remember this with detail is that I actually read my blog before, before this show. Otherwise I would never have had that kind of detail because I, I just couldn't remember it, but I I reread my blog. And anyway, on the blog, there's a great picture um, of, of all of us, of the two teams. And we are literally covered in mud. I mean, the hop and mad mud run, you know, they, they named that for a reason. There was a substantial amount of mud. So we, huge mud pit at the end, right? Yeah. 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 That's right. You had to crawl, crawl through a mud pit, like probably under like, uh, like low, low wire or low ropes or something just to, just to get Mm -hmm. you super muddy. Uh So we finished and, and we felt pretty good about what we had done, even though, you know, head to head, we, we had really no idea, but, but we figured, well, we knew we finished in about 45 minutes and felt that that was going to be pretty competitive with some of the uh, electronic. Uh-oh. There you go. On, on, <laughs> on, on cue. We felt that that was going to be pretty competitive with some of the uh, some of the electronic times that were being posted. Right. Because it was a chip timed event. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the <laughs> when the awards ceremony started and they start calling off the podium for the male four person team and they start, you know such and such team third place and they gave the time such and such team second place and they gave the time such and such team first place and they gave the time our name wasn't called and our time which we had about at about approximately 45 minutes was the clear winner yeah but we weren't called Hmm. (laughs) there was no mention of us okay (laughs) (laughs) so so, you know, so my, so my teammates are all there, you know, they're elbowing me in the ribs saying, you gotta go say something. You gotta go say something. What, what's going on? You gotta go say something. I'll wait till the, I'm not going to make a, I'm not going to make a scene while they're, you know, still doing the award. So I'll, I'll wait and then I'll go up and I'll, I'll talk to the race director. So we waited till the awards were over. I went up and, uh, I, you know, I mentioned to the race director, you know, this, this is us, this is our team. Um, you know, we, we figure we finished in about 45 minutes. I can't remember. I mean, I think that was before any of us were wearing GPS technology, mm-hmm. probably. Um, almost certainly none of us were wearing GPS technology. Maybe somebody had a watch on. Anyway, our estimation was that we were at 45 minutes. And the race directors were incredibly gracious. They said, you know, it's very likely your chip failed. And um, uh, they, the race director disappeared for a moment, came back, gave us 
gave us the equivalent swag for the winners mm -hmm. and a check for the for the for the equivalent prize money for the same prize money wow so the race director actually paid out two yeah. first place finishes because they realized mm -hmm. they realized that they had done it there and i wasn't i didn't ask for it um i i wasn't really asking for anything i just wanted right. to call it to their attention yeah. but they but they were so gracious and uh and just sort of just they were they were they were really really good about it subsequently because of that I think we ended up going back the next year or two years to support yeah, yeah. them. And then like, and then like a lot of obstacle course races, they, the little mom and pop ones just began to kind of fade out of fashion. Why do you, yeah. why do you think that, why do you think that was Jeff? Why do you, why do you think obstacle course racing kind of almost like adventure racing sort of had its peak and Zenith at the sort of 2010, 2011, 2012. And then it's, you know, the decline of the mom and pop, uh, right. off the course races sort of, um, uh, parallels the meteoric rise of Spartan race. You think it had anything to do with Spartan races or what? Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think, you know, there was like these, all these little mom and pop races. Then there was, you know, a few Spartan races, like I said, maybe one or two in new England and that was it. You know, they did start in Vermont. So there were a couple here, but then, um, you know, I think, I don't know if there was pressure from Spartan or or just you know felt pressure for these these uh, mom and pop races, but they just you know had a heyday of three to four years, like you said. I think most of them were around a couple of years, and then you know then Spartan races just started showing up everywhere, right? Not only were there one or two in New England, but there was one and two in every state, right? And and um, just so many of them, like you said, a meteoric rise of, of Spartan races into, you know, all distances, all different categories. Um, eventually, they went into trail running, too, I think. And then then it was interesting. I think, you know, like like you're saying with, with other types of races, I think there, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't seen much about Spartan races in the past, like four, four or five years, even. I don't know if they're still, I mean, they're definitely still around, but I think that's the, even declining now. So I think that obstacle racing heyday is probably over. I I kind of, and, and, and I think one thing that was, at least for me, I, I did them for a few years, you know, probably five or six years, maybe, um, but, you know, I think it was like that one upsmanship where, you know, the, the races kept getting longer, harder, in my opinion, less safe. And, and so eventually, you know, I got to a point where I was like, you know, I'm getting older here. These these things are really, you know, they're really challenging and they're really um, potential for a lot of injury as well. And so that's what eventually turned me off and, and went back to, you know, more longer distance trail running, mountain running. Um, so I don't know what's happening with it now. I still see some emails and some social media posts, but I haven't, I haven't seen the hype that was back in the heyday for sure. Um, well, Spartan racing is, is, it's definitely still a thing. I have, uh, I currently have one athlete that I'm, I'm coaching. That's a, that's a Spartan mm -hmm. athlete. Um, but I wonder, you know, I, I wonder about the, I wonder about the financial, uh, uh, cost. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not cheap to do. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I mean, un unless they change their price structure, I, I think I recall, and not only is there a, there a fee for the event, but there used to be a fee for parking. And then yeah. if you had spectators come, they would pay to park. And uh, right. so, I, I mean, I wonder, I wonder about, I wonder about the, the economics 
behind it and 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 whether or not um you know with the with the way the the economy is nowadays if people aren't just being more selective about it. i mean it's hard it's hard to know yeah. it's i mean i'm always amazed that people would be willing to spend a couple hundred dollars on an entry fee and i know that's not unusual in the world of of triathlon or or spartan racing for you know for for entry fees to be that high but i'm always I'm, I'm just always amazed that people are willing to spend that money. Um, right. Yeah. These things, but mm-hmm. um, nevertheless, uh, those are, those are fun memories about, yeah, yeah, for about, sure. Yeah. About you getting connected with acidotic racing. Um, and so then fast forward to, so that was 2010, 2011, you got connected with acidotic racing and became a, uh, and became an active member in the group. Um, um, participating in trail racing and, and mountain racing as a participant, uh, mm-hmm. and then kind of doing, doing your own thing as well too, which, which will, 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 will get to your, your, uh, your trail and mountain running credentials as an athlete in just a moment. But, um, but at, at, at some point, um, and maybe you remember the, maybe you remember the story better than I do, but, um, uh, you be, you, you got into the race directing, uh, realm, uh, you and I, well, you and I collaboratively got right. into the to the uh, into the race directing realm uh, with the uh, with the Bretton Woods with the now defunct Bretton Woods <laughs> Fell Race, right. um, the North American Championship. It was the North. It was the North American <laughs> Fell Racing Championship. That's right. Um, and that would have been how long did how long did we do that, Jeff? We did that for what, three that, years, four years, four years, I think, four yeah. years. So maybe 2014, 15. Uh, 15, 16, 17, 18. Yeah, maybe. 15, 16, 17, 18, right? Because then we cause we then we started the Waterville Valley Mountain Race in 2019. Yeah, yeah that sounds about right. Right. We didn't we didn't take a year off in between nope. the end of the Bretton Woods Fell Race and the beginning of the Waterville Valley. Correct. So all right. So we'll say we'll say we'll say 2015. So um like all of these things, the you know, the the idea is usually hatched a year or so in advance of the race actually getting going, right? Because it it takes a little bit of a lead prep time to go from concept, hey, I got this idea for a race to actually being able to execute the race. You, you, know, you can't you just can't turn it around that quickly. So it's likely, although I don't remember specifically, but it's likely that um that uh you and i had a conversation sometime in 2014 maybe you remember it better than i do um how did so how did that come to be how did you how did you go from being an acidotic racing team member to being an acidotic racing race director well i think um so maybe as we'll talk about I've, i've kind of been pretty interested in some of the uh the more esoteric aspects of trail racing so you know got into as part of acidotic got into just the mountain running which is you know pretty wacky in itself for us mountain runners it seems normal but for normal people that's pretty wacky um and i think so i think at some point 2014 as you said Around that time, you had, I think you you had the idea from somebody maybe who had traveled to Europe about this crazy type of race called fell racing, where, you know, in the, the hills of, especially in, in the UK, the hills of the UK, where there's these, you know, rolling green meadows, they have these races where, you know, there's no course, it's just, you know, a checkpoint somewhere out there. 
And you know, it's usually up a big hill, and then there's checkpoints around these other hills, and you can just go wherever you want. You know, and 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 in the UK, it's a little bit different, where you can just run kind of wherever you want. Every every kind of open space is is available to the public there. Um, and so I remember, I remember we talked about that, and and we're like, wow, that would be cool. Like, how could we do that here? You know, you can't just run through the White Mountain National Forest like bushwhacking. You know, people are going to get lost and hurt. Um, but we we watched some videos of of some of these races in in the UK, and I think I think then we had the idea of maybe you know, and we had you guys had the Loon Mountain race going already, you had Cranmore, and we said why can't we do this at a ski area? Because then there's you know there's more open land, there's a lot of options, you know the the trails are going to be marked, but going downhill, right? So <laughs> you're not going to know where you're going really. You're going to have to do a little navigation here. Um, but you could also do a little bit of prep, right? Because you can get a, a trail map and kind of figure out where things are. Um, and so we said, you know, let's let's find a ski area that would be willing to do this. It would be big enough to have a lot of real estate to be able to do this. And and I remember just falling in love with the aspect of like being able to choose your own course and like having just complete chaos at the start, right? <laughs> um, and so I think you and I talked about that over that next year and then, um, you know, growing up in, in Littleton, I was always over in, in the Crawford Notch, Bretton Woods area. So knew Bretton Woods pretty well. And, and I think that's how we decided on on Bretton Woods as a, a fairly large, you know, not terribly steep, not terribly rocky. So, you know, generally runnable and navigable um, and, and eventually, you know, approached them and with this idea. And I just remember, I don't know if you remember, Chris, the first race that we did there and, and pictures, so Giannina um, was the photographer then and, and the pictures from the start. And it was it was just absolute chaos. We had the start line and there were people going in every direction at the start. And that was like the best thing ever. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And I. <laughs> it, it was a, it, for sure. It was a unique concept. Um you know, and as part of our research, we couldn't find any other fell race in the United States, um, which is kind of interesting because as as big as it is in Europe, like it is it is huge in Europe. Yeah. Uh, like it's you know, it's it's the equivalent of, of of trail racing here in the United States. Like it's there's trail races all over the place here in the United States. There are fell races all over the all over the place in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um but as popular as it is in the UK, it just wasn't a thing here in the United States. And and I and I, and to your point, I think a big I think a big reason for that is just because of, of our terrain. We we generally have more wooded uh, wooded areas than sort of open fells, uh, you know, with just with treeless landscapes where you can just you can just see the hills uh, uh, for miles. Not the case here in the United in the United States. So. That, yeah, you're right. That was our first challenge is finding a, a suitable location. Um, and, you know, of course, w w once we once we began to think, well, maybe a ski area is going to be the place for us to land. We didn't want to host it at Loon and we didn't want to host it at Cranmore because we had already we'd, we'd already been holding races there. And we didn't want to we didn't want to dilute the events that we we had established at those at those resorts. So. Uh, to your point, we looked for uh, for a new resort to us, and we landed on on Bretton Woods for all the reasons you described. The property was expansive enough. The uh, uh, at at the time, the uh, you know the events folks were excited for us to be there, um, and they were they were open to let us do this sort of crazy idea, which was like literally send a hundred people at 
well, first year, I think there were 30 people, but send 30 people onto the mountain, right? Without any rhyme or reason, no maps, no course markings, well, no maps, uh, no course markings, no course to follow. Folks had maps. Yeah. They knew where, uh, and, and and the checkpoints were marked on the map. So mm -hmm. kind of technically, you you know, you had an idea of where the checkpoints were, but it was really choose your own adventure. And uh, and you're right. At the start of the race, you know, the 30 or so people went in 30 different directions uh, as people had devised, you know, their own sort of uh, game plan. And uh, what a really, what a really cool race. I believe the first year it was not part of the USATF New England mountain circuit. So we had, uh, as I, as I, as I recall, I think we had 30 or so people uh, finish and we were actually pretty tickled with that because uh, right. Cause it was such a crazy idea. Mm -hmm. Mountain running is a fairly unique niche sport. Well, fell racing is, is a, <laughs> a niche of that niche. Right. So, I mean, we didn't know if anybody was going to show up, mm -hmm. um, but we had a handful of people show up. Uh, Paul Kirsch was gracious enough to, uh, to, to let us into the USATF New England mountain circuit and our participation numbers. Uh, I think they, they tripled the next year. I think we were over a hundred people the next year. Um, and then, um, I can't, I don't know if it was the last year that we did it or the next to last year that we did it. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to race it. Mm -hmm. Paul and I both did, um, uh, we, we had enough people to, to help. And so I was, which is, as you know, it's kind of, it's unique and rare for a race director to actually be able to race their own event. And I think that year, uh, I believe that year we had to push it to June or July for some reason that I don't remember. I mean, the, our idea was that it was going to be a fall. I mean, yeah. it was a fall race the first yep. year. Yeah. Um, cause it just, it made, it made the most sense for our schedule at that time because Cranmore was earlier. Um, I think, I think it had to do with maybe it was, might've been Cranmore had bid for the U S mountain champs and had to do it in right. the fall. That's and right. So we, Cranmore, we flip flopped with Cranmore. That's actually. Correct. That's correct. Well, it was that year that we, that we did it in the summertime. And again, I can't mm -hmm. remember if it was mid June or late July. Anyway, it was either June or July. It was the, I think it was the one year that we did it in the summertime mm -hmm. and I raced it and it had to have been a hundred degrees. It was brutal. It was brutal. And, uh, I'll just, I'll never forget that. I think, I mean, we must've had what a third of the field DNF just because yep. it was so incredibly hot mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. just, just crazy <laughs> conditions. Um, I can't remember. I didn't, I wasn't blogging at that time. So I don't have a really clear recollection of how I ended up doing. Doesn't matter. Um, uh, but I developed, uh, I developed a, a really deep and personal understanding of the challenges of fell racing. Mm -hmm. Um, but super fun and super cool, but unfortunately it just, it wasn't going to work out for us at that resort long-term. Um, as things typically go with, with ski resorts, there's a lot of, there's a lot of turnover in personnel, um, particularly, particularly the event management personnel. And so, you know, we had kind of, I think we had been handed over maybe once or twice and, and, um, uh, it just, it, it just seemed like it was, it was, it was a, it was an uphill battle pun intended for us to, to coordinate with the resort. And, I, and, and I'm sure that's, I mean, that's partly on, on our side as well. Yeah. Be that as it may, um, we just didn't see a future with the event continuing and not because it wasn't a cool idea not because people didn't dig it. Cause 
because there were there were a number of people that really liked the idea. I mean, it was the only obviously it was the only fell race in the USATF New England Mountain Circuit. So mm -hmm. there was a there was a, a uniqueness to it uh, in that regard. Uh, and of course, just it was probably one of the only fell races in the United States at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Even at this point. So. Um, uh, but it just, it, it was, it was just more of, it just wasn't going to, it really was, wasn't going to work for us to stay there, uh, uh, at that resort at that time. I think if uh, you remember, right too, that was the, that was also the year we were having trouble with, you know, some coordinating and communicating with the resort, but it was also the year where for whatever reason, the world mountain running champs were going to be much later. I think they were in South America. So they were like in November. And so they wanted a very late US mountain champs for 2019. Um, we thought about it, do, thought about doing it at Bretton Woods. And then with, you know, with the terrain that we had not being a very tall mountain and with, um, you know, the, the trouble with communication, we, we said, okay, we'd like to do it. Asadotic would like to do this race, but maybe Bretton Woods not the right spot. And that's that's also some of the pressure that pushed us to a, a different location, I think. Yeah, good that so that's 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 good recollection. So that would have been that would have been late in 2018. Correct. Um, when the when the bid for the 2019 US Mountain Running Championship would have had to have been submitted uh, to USA Track and Field. Um, 2019 was an up down US it was an up it was an up down year for world mountain running champs right. uh, so it needed to be an up down year for the qualifier um for for the listener that's not familiar with that um it used to be although it's changed a little bit now but it used to be that the world mountain running championships uh, alternated um between uphill and up down years right. so one year the the uh, the world mountain running championship was an uphill exclusive race just just uphill the next year it was an up down year so you'd race up and down and the u.s mountain running championships which were the which was the qualifier for the world team um needed to reflect what the world mountain running championships were so there was this alternation uh between uphill years and up down years mount washington uh was a qualifier one year uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking regionally, Mount Washington was a qualifier one year. Cranmore has been a qualifier multiple times as an up-down course. Mm -hmm. um, Loon had had been a qualifier for uphill only, even though mm -hmm. folks that have raced Loon will say, well, there's downhill at Loon. Yes, there's a certain amount of downhill that's always acceptable uh, in an uphill year, but Loon had been a qualifier as well. Again, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking regionally. So, so again, to, to your point, uh, late 2018, it's probably October, November. The bids, I think, are due beginning of December. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an up-down year. USATF is is open to the idea of New England hosting the world the uh, U.S. Mountain Running Champs in 2019. But to your point, the qualifier needed to be later in the year because the worlds were much later in the year. And, and generally, USATF prefers the qualifying event to be, you know, within four to six weeks of the, of the, of the world mountain running championship, any longer than that, it's just difficult for athletes to stay, to stay in their, you know, in their peak fitness and to keep athletes healthy. In other words, you don't want to, you don't want a U.S. qualifier in the spring and then the world mountain running championships in the fall. It's just, right. that's not what USATF uh, is looking for. So to your point, 
-hmm. we had this opportunity to bid on on the u.s mountain running champs for up down um uh bretton woods was just we just felt like it would would be a little bit of a gamble for us to host a, a u.s mountain running champs at a venue in which as you were as you said we were having just a little bit of a tricky time communicating uh with them and we didn't <laughs> we didn't want to we didn't want to risk it um yep. even though we kind of really did risk it by going <laughs> yeah that's what i was gonna say instead we we took we rolled the dice and went to a new location <laughs> sure we sure did right i mean the, the old expression the devil that you know is better than the devil that you don't know but we we threw that convention out the window um, so how did, yeah, do, do you remember, how, how did we land, how did we land on, on Waterville Valley? How did we, how did we get to that? Well, um, so I think we were, you know, we had the parameters for the world championship course. So when, when thinking about putting together a bid, we needed some pretty serious vertical elevation, right? Um, and so we were trying to think, you know, what were some of the bigger mountains around the area? Um, you know, some of them are, are have state affiliations as far as like Cannon and, and others. So Waterville became a pretty nice choice. And I think um, through Acidotic, there was some connection to the governor as well. And so we got a, an in there um, and then eventually got connected with the, the director of operations and marketing um, and, 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 you know, got the kind of the logistics set up, which were, you know, the first big hurdle, getting, getting the resort to agree to this. You know, unlike a lot of the other resorts, it was interesting that Waterville really doesn't have summer operations. So it was it was an interesting new challenge in that they didn't really have anything going on in the summer. Bretton Woods has, you know, of course, the, the lift that they do. They do some mountain biking. Um, a lot of other places do. But Waterville really doesn't. They have other stuff going on, you know, in other parts of town. But um, so getting those logistics in place was the first big challenge um, with some help from from the, the then still governor of, of New Hampshire, I think, helped out with that as, as well and, and um, got over that hurdle. And then I think, you know, me and, and you as, as well spent most of that summer in Waterville, just about, you know, at least every other weekend or, or a couple of weekends a month for sure, just scouting out the terrain and, and looking for a course that would be suitable to um, to, to mimic the world championship course. And, and, you know, I think anybody who's skied at Waterville just really knows there's some really challenging terrain there, which becomes quite difficult for, for running uphill, but also we needed the distance. So it was, it was interesting um, kind of iterations of running different courses and, and putting together a, a really nice course, which I think we were able to do and, and get everything in place. And, and it, it did fall into place and, and, we did get the bid. So <laughs> I think it's from then on. Yeah. And, and while, while Waterville Valley was a new location for us uh, to host a U.S. mountain running championship, hosting U.S. mountain running championships was not new to us. So, I mean, we had, you know, we, we had the experience of, I mean, we, we knew what we needed to do. We just didn't have, have any idea how we were going to do it at the resort again because it was it was a new venue for us. Um, but um, but but the folks at, at Waterville Valley, you know, at that time initially and 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 through to today, uh, just I mean they they can't be any easier to work with. Um, they're just they're they're gracious, they're helpful, they're open, they're I mean you know. It, anything that we've needed. Um, and uh, they, they've been there. I mean, they've, they've just been, they've been just amazing hosts. Um, 
because there, I mean, you 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 alluded to it. Um, there is a little bit of a of complexity to to Waterville Valley. I mean, you mentioned Cannon. Uh, Waterville Valley has has is on uh, state forest, uh, national right. forest. Yep, yep. National forest. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So so part of the property is is national forest. Yep. Um, and it's it's not the easiest thing to do to get permitting for for hosting an event in 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 the national forest. It's not that it's not that it's impossible. It's just it's not the easiest thing. Yeah. Um, and yet and yet the resort helped us navigate that. In fact, for the most part, the resort essentially helps to take care of that for us. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, my point is that the resort really has gone above and beyond to to be just amazing host. We're so we're really fortunate to have them. Um, and um, uh, e- even uh, even even to today, and we'll we'll talk about some of the challenges uh, that were presented to us this year in terms of coming up with the course. But um, but uh, but to just to to put a fine point on that on that first year uh, fall of of two thousand September of two thousand and nineteen, we hosted the U.S. Mountain Running Championship. Uh, Joe Gray, Grayson Murphy uh, were the, the the men's and women's uh, winners. Mm-hmm. Um, we had we had mountain runners come from all over the United States. It was uh, it was a, it was really it was a great event. Um, again, we had history putting on a, uh, a a mountain running championship, but we had no history putting on a mountain running championship. Or actually, we had, we had no history of putting on any event at Waterville Valley. <laughs> right. Um, but it but it really it really went off it it went off just went off really really well i mean it's a it's it's a really it's a really cool waterville valley is a really cool kind of iconic mountain running area anyway um even though the resort is 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 a is a little bit removed from town square uh where kind of the you know all the action is happening in the summertime right. it's not so remote that you know that it's 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 inaccessible um, there's lots of places to stay there, uh, in the Valley. So it's a really cool, it's a, I mean, it's, it's really a great location, I think, to host a national championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, we were, we were so grateful, uh, to be able to do it that year. So 2019, uh, goes off without a hitch. Um, 2020 rolls around and well, <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, right. 2020, um, it was probably, probably early spring that we began to have the discussion about, um, you know, wh- what are things potentially going to look like in the fall? At that point, we had already scrapped our, our spring events. Ralph Waldo Emerson trail race was canceled. Uh, Exeter trail race was canceled. Um, and, uh, we had, um, uh, we had subsequently handed over the Loon Mountain Race, so you know, so Loon was Loon was no longer an acidotic racing event, um, but we had Cranmore and Waterville Valley still on on the mm-hmm. schedule too. It just it, it just became clear that it was just not going to be in the cards for us. Other people were still other race organizations were still putting on events, um, you know, uh, staggered starts, uh, wave starts. We had a discussion briefly about wave starts, and then you know we, we kind of settled on um, while while we could do it. Um, I mean, we wondered to ourselves the burden on our volunteers because now mm-hmm. you're taking an event that maybe takes two and a half hours from start to finish for a volunteer commitment to you know 
having people go off two at a time or five at a time or 10 at a time. Now, all of a sudden you're asking volunteers to be out there for four hours or five hours. And we just, we, we, we felt like, we felt like the burden on, on volunteers and the potential risk. Although again, this is, this is early in the pandemic who really knew what the risk was to, you know, to outdoor sports. Um, I mean, is it, was it safe to, to be around people outdoors without masks on? Uh, we, I mean, we certainly weren't going to ask people to wear masks while they race. That, that to me, that, that, that was untenable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in the end, I mean, for, for, for the safety and health of our volunteers and our, 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 our participants, we just, we decided to cancel 2020. Exactly. Yeah. Like almost everything, right? There were, I think I raced twice in 2020. That was it. <laughs> there wasn't a whole, there wasn't a whole lot going on. So Obviously, the pandemic persists into 2021, um, but yet things are beginning to normalize a little bit. And and um, while we still canceled our 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 spring races, Ralph Aldo Emerson uh, and then Extra Trail Race canceled in early 2021. Um, you know, again, things be- things began to kind of turn a little bit, right? People were becoming routinely vaccinated vaccinations were becoming widely available. People were getting vaccinated at this point. Now we've got 14, 15 months of sort of data about events and, uh, and, and risk. And, uh, at this point state of New Hampshire, um, actually thanks to John Mortimer and millennium running had developed guidelines for outdoor, uh, racing, uh, running events. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had some guidelines, uh, you and I had the discussion, uh, and we decided to uh, we decided to give it a go um, in the fall of 2021, last fall. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, we I mean we made some changes. We 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 limited the field. We did uh, pre-registration only. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we 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 asked people to um, uh, you know to to uh, to verify vaccination or at the very least not verify vaccination. That's misstated to verify that they were asymptomatic. Correct. So we had, we had some basic screening protocol and procedure in place. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone that felt more comfortable wearing a mask would wear a mask. We didn't have a formal, we did not have a formal award ceremony. Um, although we did have refreshments after uh, we didn't have a formal award ceremony. So, yep. so we made some changes and, um, Although we had a we had a, a somewhat limited turnout, we still had a turnout, and I think I think people were I think people were at least the people that were there were were genuinely stoked to be back racing at Waterville Valley right after yeah, sure. after, after yep. taking a a year off. Um, now we're into twenty twenty two. Yeah. Right. And uh, <laughs> and like and like a lot of things in the event management space, particularly uh, uh, when you when you know, when you're hosting events at at ski resorts, ski resorts are ever evolving places. Right. And so, uh, you know, as you said earlier, even though Waterville Valley does not have a summer operation in terms of you know, a, a, a coaster rides or mini golf or, or, or zip lines or, or gondola rides. I mean, basically the, basically the ski mountain is shut down in the summertime. doesn't mean that there aren't projects going on. Yeah, the actually that makes it even more prime time for projects, right? There's not, sure. nobody else up there. So then they sure. can do whatever they want. For sure. So, 
Um, I don't know. When was it, Jeff? Uh, was it earlier this spring that we that we got word uh, from from Jamie mm -hmm. um, that um, that that the resort was going to be undergoing some uh, some construction uh, yeah. this summer and this fall? Um, yeah. Talk talk a little bit about <clears throat> talk a little bit about um, what's going on at the resort uh, and and subsequently what has uh, resulted in us having to change the course. Yeah, so it was interesting. I think early in the early in the spring, as you mentioned, we were contacted and wanted to know, you know, wanted to, to confirm the date of the race because, you know, they had this project going on, which they didn't basically just said that it was a lift project. They were going to have, you know, at some point they're going to have helicopters up there flying around and, and wanted to confirm that helicopters weren't going to be flying when when the race was or, or we'd have to move the race. Fortunately, it wasn't. Um, but then only maybe mid-summer did we learn that this was this major lift project that basically goes straight up the middle of the mountain. So not ideal for us. And, and basically what they're doing is they had a, a um, quad chairlift that goes from bottom to the, the top of the mountain. If anybody knows past runners or skiers, it goes up to um, kind of the high country area. There's, there is a little bit more above that, but it's really... It's, it's so exposed that it's it's served by a, uh, a T-bar only. So the, the lifts all go to the kind of the top of the mountain, the, the high country area. And so this is basically going from the base lodge to the top of the mountain, straight up the middle. And they're replacing the squad with a new um, six person lift, one of these bubble lifts where the the protection comes down all the way in front of the, the skiers and basically really prevents, you know, keeps supposedly keeps the, the skiers warmer um, by, by not allowing the wind um, through there, which is really the <laughs> the problem when you're <laughs> you're skiing um, on a cold day. Um, and so, you know, this is this new new type of lift that um, that required a lot of equipment. So a lot of uh, a lot of base station, a lot of top station, because these these chairs obviously come off of the the um, the, the tow cable like a, a gondola. Um, so needed a lot of space, a lot of heavy duty towers as well. So anyway, they, they told us um, basically that we were not going to be able to have the race crossing the lift line at all because they were going to have equipment. They were going to have, you know, cables up and down there. Um, and so basically that cut off, you know, half of the mountain and we're like, oh, no, shoot. Um, but we were able to uh, to work with the mountain ops team, and I was able to get up there a couple of times now this summer and, and look at the terrain that we had available. And so we actually were able to only slightly alter the course, and we have a great course this year with with a few alterations just to get around the uh, the, the the work that's ongoing, basically on that that straight up and down path. Hmm. Yeah, we're we're gonna, we're going to talk about what those um, what those alterations uh, ended up being and and what this year's course is going to look like um so and just just as a postscript to that for folks that are uh familiar with waterville valley that's the white peaks express quad um mm -hmm. which as you said literally uh bisects the mountain yep. <laughs> doesn't go all the way to the top it it, it uh it drops at the uh, schwendi hut mm -hmm. um but but essentially cuts the mountain in two um uh and and as 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 you will describe here in just a moment there was a workaround because uh, the existing course, um, while it did, it did, it did, it did go under that lift initially. Um, mm -hmm. It right. also, it also crossed above it at the very, at the very tippity top. So we were mm -hmm. able to, we, uh, you, you were able to redesign the course. What I, what I'm, what, what I want to, what I want to uh, talk about for a moment, uh, a little bit is 
uh, is is course design, right? So, uh, so so the way you and I delineate responsibilities at at Waterville Valley, much like much like how uh, Paul and I delineate responsibilities at uh, at Cranmore, and actually how myself and and Lindsay's delineate responsibilities for the Kingman Farm Trail Race, um, you are responsible for course design, mm-hmm. uh, course setup, and kind of on-course logistics, including aid stations and, and on-course volunteers and marshals and, and communications, uh, while I handle the, the, the registration and uh, timing. Um, so there's that's how you and I break up the responsibility. So you are the and that's the way that it was, by the way, at, at Bretton Woods as well. You were you were the you were kind of brought on uh, as as the race as the race designer or the course designer. Um, so um, bef- before I ask you about uh, your thoughts about uh, what a great course design like looks like, like what what are you looking for when you're when you're designing a course or redesigning a course? I want to ask you that. But but before I do, I want you to if you will share with the listener a little bit about your, uh, your, your mountain running credentials, because you've, you've raced, not only have you raced, uh, you know, here in the United States, but you've, you've raced, you've raced all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you would share with the listener, some of the races that you've, that you've done either, either nationally or internationally mountain, mountain races in particular, Jeff. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So as we were mentioning earlier and talking about, you know, got involved in, in acidotic um, through kind of the obstacle racing scene, but then, you know, was in, was doing a lot of trail running as well. But then, you know, through the, the wonders of acidotic, got involved in mountain racing, then did my first, I think my first mountain race was maybe Cranmore, um, but did, you know, have done Cranmore, have done Loon a number of years. Um, and and you know like like I said earlier, love kind of that esoteric aspect of trail running, and and the mountain racing is is kind of the extreme of that as well. Um, so it started doing you know all of the New England mountain races that were on trail. Um, went a number of times out to um, Whiteface out in New York as well. Uh, Ian Golding was having the uh, sky the, the only East Coast Sky Race was was there at Whiteface. So I went out. For a couple of times with that and, and really loved that scene as well um a few years i guess in 2019 i think was out in colorado did um the pikes peak ultra out there so the, there's the pikes peak road race that goes up the uh the auto road but then there's also an ultra that goes that follows trails to, to pikes peak as well um so did that did a race at vale at the hill climb as well um, but then also had an interesting opportunity uh, in 2015, I guess. So I was working, as we talked about, at, at one of these biotech companies in, in Boston, had been there a number of years. This is the one that, that I had um, been involved in a lot of these, uh, these um, medicines that are now available. Um, and they, they started a sabbatical program where after six years of employment, you could, um, you know, just take six weeks off, fully paid and, and you know, recharge and refresh. Um, and it was, you know, do whatever you want. And so, you know, as we thought about this and as I was so psyched about mountain racing and, and just hearing about and learning about kind of the scene in, in Europe, as well as, you know, wanting to get to Europe with the kids, we decided as a family, we were going to go and spend that six weeks in Europe. And so we did, um, we did a, a week in Rome first, 
checking out all the historical sites and, and that. And then the other five weeks we spent in the French and Swiss Alps, which was just an amazing experience, just traveling around um, in, you know, staying at chalets and hiking and running through the Alps. But while I was there in 2015, got a chance and, and you know, coordinated to do this, um, but got a chance to take part in maybe the, the most famous mountain race in the world, the uh, Sierra all trail race. Um, which is just this incredible race held every year. It's, it's, I don't know how many years old it is, a lot, 30 or 40 or something. Um, but it is this um, incredible kind of midsummer race where all of the best trail runners in the world kind of converge on Sierras and all. And it is this amazing experience where the, the, the race starts kind of in this valley and you just, it, it's the first 10 kilometers or 6,000 feet of climbing. You just go straight up this, this ridge. And then the rest of the, the race are along the ridge and eventually plummeting down, I think, 600 meters into the village at the end in Zanal. So it goes literally from Sierra to Zanal. And that was just such an incredible experience. Like just, you know, being able to experience a, a, a European mountain race where, you know, going through all these tiny villages and everybody in the village comes out and like lines the course and you're just running through these mountain towns with like hundreds of people lining the course. Um, and it was it was just so cool. So did did that race, did a race that was in um, uh, kind of on the border of France and Switzerland as well called the uh, um, the Trail du Vallon, um, which was another um, just incredible high mountain race that had several miles that were over 10,000 feet. Um, so another just wild experience um, there as well. Got to Chamonix as well and got to see, you know, just such the cool mountain running scene in Chamonix. Um, and so I had such a good time, went back the next year actually with my dad and my sister just for a, a couple of weeks and did again Sierras and all. Had some unfinished business there. Uh, <laughs> it's a tough race. It's it's a tough race to do that first 10 kilometers and, and 6,000 feet of climbing and figure out how to race that and then be able to, you know, st keep it together for the, you know, I think it's, it's about a 35 kilometer race. So it's about a 20 kilometers ridge run, which are incredibly beautiful, but by by the time you get there, you're completely fried, right? If you if you don't run it well. And so I had some unfinished business. So I went back the next year, raced it a little bit better, um, but also did and, and probably had maybe one of the best races of my life at um, the Matterhorn Ultrax, which is this race that kind of circumnavigates the Matterhorn in uh, Zermatt. And did that, I think the week after Sierra's and all the next year. And just, he just had an incredible race there. My, my dad and my, and, and the cool part about that race is it's Zermatt is kind of in this valley and the race kind of goes around the Matterhorn around this valley. And so for spectators, it's pretty amazing because you can take all these lifts and get to the top of the mountain and see the runners in various places around the course. And so very cool. My dad and my sister were kind of jumping from lift to lift, following my progress around. And, and you know, I was kind of just, it was a, like I said, a week after Sierra's and all was just um, really at first aiming to, to just cruise it. And after the first couple of times that I see my sister and she's like, hey, you're doing really well. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So um, just thought it was just one of those races that you've talked to a number of your guests about where 
you know, you just feel incredibly good for some reason. And, and you know, it's a combination of the, the nutrition, the hydration and, and the race plan, um, but had an incredible race there and, and just loved it. Um, so that was 2016 and then 2019, um, no, 2018, sorry. Um, 2017 didn't do anything, 2018, um, after my experience at Whiteface, decided with a buddy of mine that we were going to go travel to Scotland and, and take part in the World Skyrunning Championships that were in the Glencoe region, the mountain region of, of northern Scotland, um, which was another incredible experience. <laughs> um, got to race uh, the, the, the World Championship vertical kilometer as well as the, the Ring of Steel Sky Race, which just goes across this incredible ridge that's, um, that's exposed and, and open and, and just some incredible views, some incredible racing and, and was a lot of fun. So definitely want to get back there. But then, you know, of course, after 2018, 2019 was in Colorado and then then the pandemic hit. Yeah. I haven't really been anywhere since. <laughs> well, you you you've raced in you've raced on some of the most technical, grueling, and beautiful courses in the world, really. Um, so, with that experience, um, you know, wh what are what are you looking what are you looking for when you are putting together a course? I mean, what do you what do you think makes? I mean, I. I I have a pretty good idea what you think makes a great course, you know, uh, you know, in Switzerland, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, right. Or, or in the Alps, like that, that it, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Relatively speaking, you know, it, it, it's easy to put together a breathtaking course there a little bit more challenging. Cause you, you got to work with, you got to work with what you're presented. Right. So, so you're given Waterville Valley. Mm -hmm. Okay. As a landscape for you as a, as a course designer. Now, again, for the listener to understand the reason that Waterville Valley is a one lap up down is because we were attempting to, at the time when the, when this, when the Waterville Valley mountain race idea was hatched, um, our task was to create a course that mimicked the world mountain running championships. So that's where we, that's where we landed, but, um, as a one lap up down race, but what, but what are you looking for as a, as a course designer? What, what are some of the things that you're thinking about when you're putting together a course that maybe, maybe someone that's never designed a course, maybe, or, or maybe that's run a lot of races, but hasn't really designed a course before, maybe not have an appreciation for. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I've, I've never been accused of making too easy of a course, I think. So <laughs> I really, I like the, uh, the, just the grueling, you know, and I think that's that's really what what I saw in in Europe as well. Like the courses, like they don't apologize for just having a, a grueling, brutal but awesome course, right? And so, you know, when you have a place like Waterville, you know, you you have a lot of vertical to work with. So getting getting just some some really nice but grueling climbs in is is key. So you know, utilizing both Green Peak and Tecumseh at Waterville was was a necessity. But then, you know, like you like you referred to with with Switzerland, you know, it's easy there to to get some really nice um, terrain and and views. But you know, look for the same thing here, right? I mean, Waterville has some great views. So, you know, getting to a couple of places where you know the runner has just an amazing view. And I think, you know, from the top of Green Peak, there's a great view. But then the the really awesome peak is you know over by the Schwendi Hut that you mentioned. You know, you go by that on the way up and you kind of turn the corner on that road and you have just an amazing view of the entire valley. 
And then as you come back down off of high country, it's even better. You see, you're, you know, you're running almost to this ridge and you, you can't see it drop off, but you know it drops off. But there's there's the whole expanse of the wilderness right in front of you. And it's there's a couple of really amazing views there. So I think those are a couple of, of key pieces is, is runnability. You know, mountain running is, is sometimes runnable <laughs> for some people. Um, you know, but so runnability and, and terrain, you know, you don't want to be scrambling over boulders. So picking the terrain that's that's at least, um, you know, smooth, but but also grueling. And I think that was one one of my proudest moments, I think, for you and I as a race director is after the, the world championships when Gre uh, just Joe Gray came up to us and said, that was an absolutely brutal course, but I loved every minute of it. And then after he came back from the World Championships, in which he he won the World Championships, said that Waterville was absolutely a, some of the best preparation he had for for racing at the World Championships. And I think that was one of the best compliments we ever had. <laughs> for sure, that's that's high praise coming coming from Joe. Um, yeah, I, I I also think it's in, it's important for uh, for the listener, and particularly if the listener is a participant in mountain racing, and even more specifically if they're a participant uh, in the Waterville Valley Mountain Race, um, that can that that very specific and special considerations are made um, when the uphill and the downhill portions of the course are designed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're you are thinking of different things right. uh, when you are designing the ascent part of the course and when you're designing designing the descent part of the course what, so what, what what are some of those things that you're thinking about um, um, you know the difference between the ascent part of the course and the descent part of the course what are you thinking about in terms right. of in terms of the runners that'll be on that course yeah so I, you know as I was just talking about you know the the uphill can be you know completely brutal. Um, but you want good footing for that. So, you know, keeping on some of the service roads is, is a great idea. But then, you know, service roads for the downhill are not fun, right? So you want to be on grass. You want to be on, on runnable terrain. You don't want people getting hurt. So really picking the, the terrain to match whether you're, you're ascending or descending. You know, we do a lot of kind of, we try to do a lot of cross mountain on the descent. So it's not as just brutally straight down. Um, but also mixing it up a little, you know, as, as anybody who's run Waterville knows, there's a bit of an uphill on the downhill as there's some downhill on the uphill. So, um, keeping it, keeping it a little bit mixed so you're not just flying straight down the mountain, but you're, you know, you're, you're cutting across the mountain, you're cutting back, there's a little bit of uphill, a little bit of, of swerving around different trails. So, um, just making it really flow, I think is, is key. Hmm. Yeah, and I and I I think it's important that uh, that folks hear that from a course designer that, um, uh, while it's true that it, that the spirit in Europe is they are unapologetic uh, <laughs> in ter in terms of the course they design it you show up and race it it is what it happens to be uh, here in the states it's a little bit that way but we're what we also do pay attention to and we we we. We give special consideration to what the descent looks like, um, and uh, generally, we're gonna we're gonna ascend the steeper stuff, and we're gonna descend the uh, the stuff that's not as steep. And really, from a from a, a safety mm -hmm. standpoint, you know, I mean, it's possible to create something that's hard, but that's that, but but safe at the same time. So so hard and unsafe do not necessarily need to go hand in hand. Right. You can you can um, you, you can challenge people without putting them at a, at undue risk. And mm -hmm. look, there's, 
there's always going to be risk associated with trail running because the footing is, the footing is unpredictable. You know, there's that, that, that's just, that's, that's part of what trail running is. But as, as a course designer, um, you do have some influence. You have all the influence when it comes to, you know, how people get up and, and down the mountain. Mm -hmm. Well, then that leads us then Jeff to, um, to the course modifications this year. So, um, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit in that, um, you know, because of the construction in the middle of the mountain, essentially, uh, that construction that bisects, uh, the, the mountain, um, the original course, uh, went under that lift, uh, twice, twice on the way up. Yeah. And once on the way down. All right. So three times total. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so modifications needed to be made. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, that this year's course did not uh, travel underneath that uh, that that lift line uh, or across that construction area. Um, so historically speaking, this race has come in at uh, what just un- just over seven miles. Yeah, I think seven seven to seven one maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think we generally describe it as. Uh, or historically has described it as seven miles and 3000 feet of, of, yep. of vertical. Um, uh, so um, some people may be happy to hear that the course is a little bit shorter and a little less vertical. And uh, yeah. obviously again, it's trail racing. Everyone's GPS is going to give a little bit different number, yep. but what did your GPS uh, have the new course at in terms of distance and ascent? I've had it twice now at 6.4 miles. So lost a little bit of distance and 28.75 of gain. So a little bit shorter, but not not quite as steep, but. No, no, for sure. I mean, you still have to get up to the tippity top uh, of the mountain. Now, um, uh, in years past, the the traditional course uh, has had what we describe as three major climbs. There's Tommy's World Cup run which is a, a quarter of a mile, 26% grade average. Mm-hmm. There's governor's run, which is about a kilometer and it averages 22% grade. And then oblivion, uh, true grit hassle. Uh, that's the last, the, the, yeah. the third major climb. That's 1.1 miles and it averages 19% grade. So those are what we had, we have historically identified as the quote unquote major climbs here um, in this in this particular race. Uh, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but the modifications have eliminated Tommy's world cup run that climb. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So Tommy's world cup is on the right side of the, if you're looking up the mountain, the right side of the current chair project. So couldn't get over there. So basically what we do is the the first part of the course is the same. Instead of crossing that lift line, we basically turn and go straight up exhibition um, which is the trail that we eventually would have come down if we had gone up world cup so we do lose um, one of those brutal climbs we still gain a little bit of elevation not quite as much as we would have if we had gone up world cup but go up exhibition along the lift project and then turn and come back down exhibition okay and Um, then and then and then essentially back on the uh back on the old course at that point right um the uh, two the two big climbs are still intact yeah. So, gov- so, yeah. So governor's run, which is governor's run, which is on the far left-hand side of the mountain. Um, that, that major climb is still intact. That's a, again, that's a kilometer and it averages 22% grade. Um, what's the, f- uh, the footing there, Jeff is uh, it's gravel service road. 
correct? Am I remembering? Um, yeah, Road? most of most of Green Peak is kind is not really service road. It's it is gravel. It's rock. It's it's pretty smooth and okay. Um, uh, it, but it's two track. It's, it's uh, two track. Yeah, 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 it's two track. I mean, it may not be service road, but it's right. it's correct. It looks and feels kind of like a two track road. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then so that so then Governor's Run then takes uh, takes participants up to uh, Green Peak. Correct. Right. Summit. Mm-hmm. Um, from Green Peak, then you work your way. Now you're working your way toward the Schwendi Hut. Yep. Uh, which a little, uh, little bit of a descent, and then you work your way back up. Yeah, again. you got to come. You got to come off. You got to come yeah. off Green Peak. Um, then you begin to climb. That that's when it gets onto onto gravel service road because yeah. Oblivion, True Grit, Hassel, those are those are loose gravel service road. A la folks that have raced at Loon, there's quite a bit of loose gravel service road climbs at Loon. Yep. That's what that's what that 1.1 mile climb, 19% grade average. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are no those are no pushovers. That 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 kilometer yeah. governor's run. 22% grade. Yeah. And then, and then oblivion 1.1 miles, 19% grade. Um, uh, those are, those are pretty, those are pretty, uh, uh, pretty stout for sure. Um, and then, and then as in years past, we go up, uh, up to the tippity top. Uh, you, you, you mentioned, you've been mentioning Tecumseh. We don't technically summit Tecumseh mountain proper, but but the high point of the resort, uh, the tippy mm-hmm. top of the resort, you can't, there's no more ski area in right. terms of, in terms of where we race. We, mm-hmm. we use the entirety, um, of the vertical on the mountain. Correct. We go, yep. we go as high as the mountain. As yep, the ski mountain. There. I think there's a cell phone tower at the very top. We go right, right below by that. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Um, and then descending back to, uh, back to Schwendi hut, where by the way, there will be an aid station there again this year. Correct. At, at yep. Schwendi hut. Yep. And that'll uh, which, be right at about 4.1 miles. Yeah. But, but you'll have access to it twice. Correct. Yeah. So you can do it at 4.1 on the way up about 4.8 on the way back. Okay. All right. So you've got, you've got access to that. Uh, at the present, we're not entirely sure whether or not there will be a third aid station. Correct. A little bit lower in the mountain. We have not yet made that determination. Maybe perhaps an, an unmanned aid station with just water as you start to ascend Green Peak. Okay. All right. I think it might work. Um, th- that final detail will be uh, will will be delineated and presented to uh, participants in a pre-race email. Um, and then and then essentially the descent is same same as last year or where uh, no. no right so because what we used to yeah what we used to do is come down. Um, following the same course back kind of across the top of the mountain, right where the lift project is now. Um, and then we would, we would kind of go down and then cross the mountain under the lift. And so we can't do that obviously this year. So as we come down high country, we'll be staying to the, as you're looking down the mountain, we'll be staying to the far left. So to the left of the the new lift project on some trails that we've never been on. It's, um, I think it's called uh, Periphery is the upper trail. So we'll be staying on Periphery. Um, should be, it's it's a nice surface actually. It's a nice grass surface. Um, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you what the surface be, was. Should be mowed, um, so that'll be nice. So it'll be grass, grass down. We'll, we'll stay far left of the ski area instead of kind of cutting around and, and circling under the lift. We gotta stay left of that lift. So we'll stay on Periphery. Um, down the north side chairlift, which is is where where we kind of cut across and, and come to it at the end. 
Um, so we'll be hooking on to the, the old course at the bottom of the north side chairlift, which then we cut across the mountain again, partially to um, Siegel Street, down Lower Cells Choice, a quick little jog up, um, I think Old Tecumseh, and then back onto Lower Periphery. And then the finish will be a little bit different as well. And, and tentatively, it'll be going under, it will be cutting across the, the new lift project where they, they will have a, um, a corridor built for us. Um, so we'll, <laughs> to be determined on the day of the race, we'll see. Um, but it'll somehow cut, cut across either below the, the lodge or below the lift and um, start and finish will be where the start and fin start was in 2019 down in that courtyard. Okay. So and um, yeah, bib, bib, bib pickup will be, will be somewhere in and, in and around there. Um, and um, the resort or the, the base lodge will be open uh, for us to use the facilities, the restroom facilities. Yep. Correct. Um, okay. Um, well, that's, that, that, uh, that, that was a great conversation about the modifications of the course. Um, let's, let, 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 let's finish with this, uh, with the, with the Waterville Valley mountain race. Um, you know, having, having been on that course multiple times now, well, multiple, multiple times yes. with, with designing it, setting it up, breaking it down now, redesigning it. Um, um, what are, yeah, what, I mean, and, and again, with your, uh, with your credentials, uh, having raced some of the most epic mountain races in the world. Um, how would, how would you, if you were racing this, this race, how would you, how would you approach it? How would you, how would yeah. you attack this, this course? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I think, you know, it is interesting because you have even, you know, where there's the three big climbs, you do have a couple of smaller climbs, even at the beginning, right? Cause if you remember anybody who's raced it before, you go out of the start, you kind of cut across the service area and then you have, you know, what seems like a big climb at the time, when you look at the overall profile, it's just a little bump. <laughs> um, but I think that's that's an interesting logistical and, and race, you know, race strategy discussion, right? Because you, you go up a little bit, then you cut back down to the bottom, basically to the start again. And then you, you go up um, what would have been World Cup. Instead, this time it'll be exhibition. So I think, you know, I think you could race... You know, obviously you don't want to go out too hard because it's a long race and, and a lot of climbing, but I think you can race that first hill a little bit more, a little bit more aggressively. And then where I think, where I think you have to be a little bit conservative is that long climb. You got a long grind up Green Peak and that's, that kind of twists and turns. It's got some interesting terrain. Um, so I think that's where, for me, I think that's where you have to be a little bit more conservative. And then when you get back to the oblivion and the service road, then whatever you have left right and then you know i love the downhill so i think you know saving saving a little something so you can really hammer those downhills at the end i think is is key so for me i think going out a little bit harder maybe obviously not too much but a little bit harder and then taking it a little easy on green peak to be able to then really open it up on oblivion and and hit the top in stride and then then have that nice 1.4 mile downhill yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think I've done the race, uh, I mean, I've done the course probably, I don't know, maybe two dozen times. But yeah, e <laughs> easily. And and it's as you know, it's always the case that you you train your weaknesses and you race your strengths, right? So yeah. you know, so for me, um, I mean, I was always a pretty solid climber. I'm not a very good descender. So I if I got to make my hay on the climb, 
Like, right. cause it, you know, if, if you and I are racing together, um, you know, if I'm going to put, if I'm going to put any time on you, if I'm going to have any shot of beating you, I've got to get, I've got to beat you to the summit. I got to put some time on you uh, to the summit, uh, and then force you to run a little extra, a little extra hard on the descent where you are right. head and shoulders stronger than me on the descent, right? I'm just, I'm just waiting for you to fly by me, but I got to put the hurting on you a little bit on the climb up. Right. Cause I, I just know I'm not going to be able to hold you off on the descent. So I, I always kind of feel like it's a, you train your weaknesses, but you, but you race, you race to your, you race to your strengths. Um, one last, one last question about that, um, about the course and, um, is, um, you know, with those, with those two significant climbs, right. The governor's run and then, and then oblivion, true grit, hassle, um, what, what's your take on, on, there he is, That's tough. <laughs> what, what's your, what's your take on, what's your take on grinding in a really low climbing gear versus breaking into a walk? Uh, I think, you know, for me, I think, you know, a, a power hike is, is more efficient for me. So breaking into a walk, but but keeping the tempo up and keeping keeping really focused on you know not not getting into a slog. I mean, I think it's steep enough. Green Peak is steep enough, and Oblivion is steep enough that for me, at least, it doesn't make sense to try to run it. Um, I think power hike most a lot of that. You know, there's there's some places where you can break into a run for sure, but I think um, for me, I think that's the right call. Did you? I mean, did you did you use that approach and strategy when you were when you were racing? uh in europe yeah of course yeah a lot i mean that's that's what you see a lot there and you have a lot of really fit um you know even older folks who just are out in the mountains every day that are just flying by you <laughs> and they're like in a night in a power hike and they're they're working it with their hands on their knees just really you know pumping any um anything else you want to you wanted to add about uh about the the course design this year or uh or or the event actually i guess we should we should we should remind people uh when this show is aired uh will be um monday the 19th mm -hmm. online registration closes thursday evening 7 p.m. correct day of event entry is available mm -hmm. um folks 7, can visit yeah 7:30 day 30 i think uh yes 7 30 is that right yes we should race start 9 a.m start right yep. yeah 9 a.m start 7 30 to 8 30 and really technically it's like 7 30 to 9 50 or 8 55 right but <laughs> ideally yeah, folks yeah. can pick up their bib um sometime between 7 30 and 8 30 mm -hmm. uh, 9 a.m start um rain or shine um day of event entry as i said will be available details um uh, very specific details available on our website at acidoticracing.com uh we'll be posting um uh you know uh updates on our on our socials instagram um uh, facebook etc uh so anything else you wanted to you wanted to add jeff about 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 the event this year no, i think it'll be fun so and uh, we're obviously um giving some some of the the, the proceeds back to charity we have waterville adaptive sports this year who Thank does yep. a great job check out their website they do a great job with um providing you know snow sport for uh disabled folks and and developmentally challenged folks so there's a great video on their website um 
So yeah, we'll be, we'll be supporting them this year. Yeah. And, and this race, this Waterville Valley race is really, is it's a, it's a great illustration of our three pillars, community competition and charity. Cause we get all kind of three things at once. Right. So we, we get, we, we get the community, um, you know, we are, we're, we're supporting the local community, uh, through our charitable contribution to Waterville Valley adaptive sports. And of course the, the competitive, uh, aspect to it. So, uh, thank you for mentioning mm -hmm. that. Um, all right, let's, let's finish with this, Jeff. Uh, it's a little segment of the show. I like to call three random questions. So I've got three random questions for you. Uh, right. if you would do this for the listener, um, before we start, uh, can you verify for the listener that you have not received these three questions in advance i have not okay. all <laughs> right. here, here we here we go all right. all right question number one for jeff hickson uh are you superstitious uh no not really okay um then my my part b to that is uh do you have any do you have any irrational fears <laughs> I do. <laughs> and my, my wife will be, uh, I don't know if she'll be happy or sad that I tell this. Um, for some reason, I don't know what it is. Maybe something happened to me when I was a child. I completely hate and will not eat any meat with bones. I don't know why. <laughs> and so my wife, so if she makes something that has bones, she has to take it off the bones for me. <laughs> which is pretty irrational, right? Because I don't know. It's, it's just something weirds me out about that. I, I mean, I'm fine with meat. I'm fine with animals. I'm fine with bones. It's just when it's on my plate, something is just bizarre. <laughs> that, uh, is, yeah. that is awesome. So, <laughs> so it must have happened a time or two when you've been out to a restaurant and or or maybe you don't order Maybe you don't order the T-bone steak, right? Exactly. If you know, or you don't order rack of ribs, or you uh -huh. don't order, or you don't order the pork chop, right? Yep. Like it hasn't happened that somebody no. like you've been with I a restaurant. Very careful with what I order and where I go. So you've, <laughs> because you've, of that. You've, but it, never but said, it is completely irrational, right? Well, it is. It is. It, that, I've never heard <laughs> that before. But you, but yeah. you've never sent something back to the kitchen and asked them to take it off the bone. No. <laughs> well, it's too bad. So how do you? So how do you enjoy ribs? Uh, you, you, that is, it's a delicacy you, you cannot enjoy. No, my wife takes it off. <laughs> that is, that's amazing. All right. Second, second random question for Jeff Hickson. Jeff, you've traveled all around the world. Uh, what's your favorite country to visit and why? Oh boy. Um, well, I mean, I guess there's no question it's Switzerland, <laughs> but I've, I've been to some amazing places, but Switzerland was just so cool. I mean, there's just so much terrain. The people are so awesome. Um, you know, it's just so easy to get around with the rail system there. You can get everywhere very easily. You know, there's so many people that are doing what we love to do as endurance athletes, like Everywhere you go, there's people that are hiking, running, biking, um, you know, all ages from little kids to, you know, very old grandmothers and grandfathers that are up high in the mountains and are super fit. And so, you know, we just had a, an amazing time there. So I would I would definitely recommend going there for anybody who hasn't been. I definitely want to go back as much as I can. Um, so, yeah, cool. It's def it's definitely on it it's it's on our list uh uh 
uh, to visit uh, when we when we when we uh, visit internationally. In fact, we uh, we're thinking of maybe taking a trip to Germany next year. We may somehow work out uh, a side trip to Switzerland. Uh, my geography off the top of my head is not great, but I don't think Switzerland and Germany are all that far apart. No, no, no totally. Right. Yeah, totally. Probably, probably doable in one trip. Yep. Yep. Okay. Last, uh, last question, last random question for, for Jeff Hickson. Um, Jeff, if, if you, so <laughs> I got a, I have a time machine in my garage. Okay. And I'm willing to give you, I'm willing to give you a ride. One ride. One, the first ride's free, I should say, and then, and then after that, you're you're, you're going to have to pay a, a you're going to have to pay a price. But um, so I'm going to offer you a, a a ride on my time machine. Okay. All right. <laughs> if you could spend three seconds in the future, or three hours in the past, when, where? Uh, that's a tough question. And, and, you know, to be fair, I did not get these questions ahead of time, but I've listened to your other podcasts. So I've heard this question <laughs> and I've thought about it. That's totally but, fair. You know, don't have a good answer. I, I don't, it wouldn't be a future. So it would be, it would be in the past sometime, but where would I go? I don't know. Um, you know, I think there's so many possibilities, right? It's, it's, would you, would you go back to spend some time with a, a relative who has passed? I mean, that's a great use of it. I think, you know, one of your guests mentioned, you know, go back to see their, th themselves when they were a, a, at their current kid's age. That's a great answer. I love that one. Um, you know, then I think you brought up in one of the shows, go back to one of your events. And, and you know, that would be amazing as well. I think, you know, that that trail race that I, I mentioned earlier, the the Matterhorn Ultrax, like that was that was just such an incredible race. I just remember like, you know, oftentimes as endurance athletes, we talk about, you know, being in the flow state. And I just felt like I was like in that state, like almost that whole race. And it was just like surreal. Like just seeing seeing myself running, and so that could be a cool place to go back to too. So I don't know what the answer to that would be. It's interesting. It's, it, yeah, it's 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 not an easy question to answer. Not an easy question. I think I think it's I think it's particularly a difficult question to answer um, uh, when you've had the opportunity to listen to some of the other episodes yeah, right. because there 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 really have been some pretty cool yeah. some pretty cool answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was you know when I. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, what I was going to say is when I when I kind of first sort of thought of that question, um, in my mind it was like, well, I'm going to be asking you know sporty, active people yeah. that have done some pretty cool races. I'm curious what race they'd like to go back and and redo. Right. Um, but by and large, that's not what the responses have been. Right. The responses yeah, yeah. have been outside <laughs> of the competitive aspect yeah. of who they are, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and and back to other times right in in their memorable times in their life well I, I guess jeff the fact that that that's a difficult question for you to answer suggests that you've you know you've led a pretty extraordinary life where you you have a really hard time thinking about where right. you'd like to go back and and spend three hours again I, I think that actually probably says your inability to answer the question probably is much more insightful than any answer that you could that you yeah could there's a lot of choices i think um, 
Well, Jeff, I, I really appreciate you spending some time uh, with, with, with myself and the listener today. Um, looking forward to seeing you in a couple of days uh, yeah, up, sure. at, up at Waterville Valley and uh, looking forward to hosting the, uh, the mountain running community this weekend. So thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. This is fun. Well, as with many other things, I had completely forgotten that Jeff and I met at the Hop and Mad Mud Run those many years ago. Uh, those were those were some great memories for sure. And it's it's fun to look back at the pictures that Janina Lindsay took. Shout out, snap acidotic, of those early Bretton Woods fell races. Jeff's right. <clears throat> Folks would scatter at the start. It was absolutely hilarious. And someone really needs to bring fell racing back to the U.S. Oh, and if you think the Waterville Valley Mountain Race will feel easier because it's shorter with slightly less climbing, well, think again. It's still going to be hard. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double Podcast. If you're listening on Spotify and enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage, click the follow button in the upper left-hand corner. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn, so make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, <clears throat> the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.